I want to share a quotation from a brother who wrote a book called Down in the River to Praise. His name is John Mark Hicks. Baptism is more important than you think, but not for the reason you suppose. You see, there seems to be two extremes on baptism. One is it's a legalistic hoop for you to jump through. That if you get the checklist right and you understand it and you do it all correctly, the communication is almost as if you have saved yourself. On the other extreme would say that baptism has nothing to do with being saved. Yes, it is a checklist, but it's a checklist of things you ought to do after you've become a Christian. You need to go to church and read your Bible and give and do all these good things. This morning, I want us to look at this topic by looking through lots of passages that help us get a handle on it, because it really is a rather controversial topic, but yet I believe the Bible is going to be pretty plain about it. So let's start. Let's start in Matthew chapter 3, and we'll march through the New Testament. You remember, John the Baptist is baptizing. Now, John the Baptist's baptism is a baptism for the remission of sins, for repentance. Now, what makes John the Baptist's baptism unusual, because baptism is not a new idea. There are all kinds of Jewish ceremonial cleansings that were called baptism. What begins to change here, though, is baptism is something one person does to another before you just went in the pool yourself. So John the Baptist is baptizing people, and Jesus lines up. Jesus left Galilee and went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Next slide, please. But John kept objecting, wouldn't you? And said, I ought to be baptized by you. Why have you come to me? I mean, if this is a baptism for the remission of sins, Jesus has no sins. It makes no sense to John. Jesus answered, for now this is how it should be. Because we must do all that God wants us to do. Then John agreed. And watch the beautiful story. So Jesus was baptized, and as soon as he came up out of the water, the sky opened, he saw the Spirit of God coming down on him like a dove. It's this beautiful scene. And then he hears a voice from heaven said, This is my own dear Son, and I am pleased with him. And so we see right here from the beginning... A shocking thing happens that Jesus lines up with sinners like you and I to be baptized. And Jesus doesn't have to do it for sins to be remitted. He says, I'm doing it out of obedience. One of the great motivations for baptism is to say, you know what? This is what God wants me to do. I want to obey just like Jesus obeyed. Now then before Jesus leaves, he gives also this what we call the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the big term of the whole passage. Make disciples. What do you do? Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants people to continue to follow him. And so his apostles are told, you go make disciples. First of all, as an initial part of becoming a disciple, you baptize them. And then, after that, you teach them everything I've commanded. You see, on this other side was the idea that baptism is just one of those ongoing commands. 
According to Jesus here, baptism is one of the initial things, and those ongoing commands would follow that. And then go to Acts chapter 2 in verse 38. This may be, in our circles, the most famous verses on baptism. Now, I want to give you the context. This is the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Jesus has preached the death, the burial, Peter's preached the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's pretty jolting because he says to these very people, a few days ago, you made a terrible mistake. You killed the Son of God. And so these people are guilt-ridden, and they want to know what to do with their guilt. And so they say to Peter, what do we do? How do we get right with God? And then Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then two things are going to happen. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in churches of Christ, you know that this has been one of the verses that we have used more than any, maybe even too much. I love the story I heard years ago about these two vans. They thought they were going to the same youth rally. One of them said Church of Christ, on the other was unmarked. And the people in the van that said Church of Christ wanted to see if these people were going to the same place. So they decided how would they identify themselves. And so they just put Acts 2.38 on a sign and held it up on the window. And the other folks gave them a thumbs up and they knew they were in the same tribe. But we've used this a lot. Someone says, if you want to know you're a member of the Church of Christ, when you go check out a new Bible translation, the first thing you do is you turn to Acts 2.38. Because this has been a strong verse for us. And it is a strong verse. It, it, it says there are two things that happen. After you have believed that Jesus really came to save you, because Peter just proclaimed he was Lord and Savior, and, and, and you repent and turn from your life and turn toward Jesus, then you're baptized in two wonderful promises, the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Reminds me of that old hymn, Rock of Ages. In that hymn, there's a line that says, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. You see, what that saying is, the double cure is the guilt and the power of sin. And what Peter says here is, here's where you get the double cure. You are over the guilt of your sin. It's forgiven. But not just that. You are now empowered to live a life where you defeat sin through the Holy Spirit. So I love that line. Baptism is a place where you get the double cure. And then another passage that's really pretty straightforward is Acts 22, verse 16. You remember the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul is blinded on the road to Damascus. He goes to the city waiting for Ananias to come to him. And Ananias comes to him, and after he's told him about Jesus further, he says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. You see, the debate in Christian circles is where and when was Saul saved? Was he saw, saved on the road to Damascus? Was he saved in the house? Here's the question I'd ask. When was his sin problem taken care of? Well, this passage is pretty plain. When he arises and is baptized, his sins are washed away. Now look at Colossians 2, verse 12. This, this verse really helps me get a further understanding. And I want you to just be patient with me because I'm going in lots of directions. Then we're going to pull it together at the end. Colossians 2, verse 12. 
For you are baptized, buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now here's what I want you to see. Let me ask some more questions. When you're baptized, are you trusting your baptism to save you? The correct answer is no. When you're baptized, are you trusting yourself and your correct understanding to save you? The answer better be no. Well, what is the answer? When you're baptized, who are you trusting? You are trusting God, the same God who resurrected Jesus from the dead. You see, what other translations say here is that when you're baptized, you are placing your faith into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a very dangerous doctrine over here on this side called baptismal regeneration. And what baptismal regeneration teaches is that it is actually the act and the water that saves you. In fact, you can be baptized as a baby and not know what you're doing, or you could be baptized as an adult and, and not really have a clear understanding, but because you just did the act, the act saves you. It's possible under baptismal regeneration to be saved and actually not have faith. And that's as far away from what the Bible teaches as possible. In fact, what I would tell you is baptism is an act of faith. And then the last verse in the New Testament about baptism, and probably the most clear, is 1 Peter 3, verse 21. You see, Peter has been talking about the flood. He's been talking about Noah and how Noah and his family, here's the way he puts it, were saved through the water. What happened? The earth was cleansed, God saved them, and they had a brand new beginning on the earth. Listen to what he says. Corresponding to that, I don't know how much plainer you can be than this, baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse has so much important material here. It saves you, but he wants to make it clear it's not about getting washed in water. It's not about a dirty body. It's not about the outward deal. It saves you, he says, by the resurrection of Jesus. That's exactly what Paul had said back in Colossians 2. It's putting your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And he says, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. The word there can be asked. We could easily translate this. It is a prayer to God for a good conscience. Almost exact same words that Paul had used back in Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. And Ananias had used from Paul. Arise, be baptized, wash your sins away. Here we go. Listen closely. Calling on the name of the Lord. Now, here's what I'd say to you. Biblically, baptism is the sinner's prayer. It's the moment where you ask, you appeal, you call upon his name. Now, let's dive into that for a moment. And again, I'm not trying to be critical or judgmental. But commonly in Christian circles today, if you come to a place where you want to surrender your life to God, you would be called upon to ask Jesus into your heart. And the way you do that is by praying a prayer called the sinner's prayer where you ask God to forgive you and to enter into you. Now, I actually went to church a couple years ago. It's a great service, very inspired. But at the end of the service, the pastor got up and said, you know, 
We'd like some of you to respond to Jesus and be saved today. And, and, and I'd like you to, to raise your hand. I want you to, to pray this prayer. And, and before he prayed it with those people, he said these words. I want you to pray with me the most important prayer in the Bible. Now, what's the problem with that? It's, thank you. It's not in the Bible. As widely used as it is, it's just simply not there. In fact, doing historical research for this message, do you recognize the sinner's prayer has only been around for about 100 years? That there's no record of people calling on the name of the Lord and the sinner's prayer before that? In fact, this is fascinating to me, many people who've grown up with that are now beginning to reject some of that teaching. One of my favorite authors and favorite preacher is Francis Chan. He is so convicting. And in one of his books, Chan talks about a, a sort of a, a, a religious Christian group that's teaching what he calls false doctrine. But then he turns the microscope on his own teachings because he says, this doesn't add up to the Bible. And then he writes this. Then I thought to myself, I need to apply that to myself just from reading the Bible. When I come up with the idea that to be saved, you need to pray a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. No. The Bible says, repent and be baptized and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. There's a man named J.D. Greer, who was actually the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who actually a few years ago wrote a book with the jarring title, Stop Praying the Sinner's Prayer. Because again, not trying to be critical and judgmental, you can't find it in Scripture. And you know as a church that we are very committed to Scripture being embedded in everything we do and believe. Now, here's what I want you to say, though. No, though. What I'm teaching you here today, and we'll pull it all together in a moment, is not a unique doctrine. In the history of Christianity, this has been the teachings of Christians. As early as AD 381, when the first written creed, statements of belief, was what's called the Nicene Creed. And they're still stating the exact thing we've been reading. Here's the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. That's been the consistent teaching through most of the 2,000 years of Christianity. In fact, this might even surprise us. At the beginning of the Reformation movement, where at some point in this movement, baptism was rejected as being a work, here's what Martin Luther wrote in only the kind of words that Martin Luther could write. Your baptism is nothing less than grace clutching you by the throat, a graceful throttling by which your sin is submerged in order that you may remain under grace. Come then to your baptism. Give yourself up to be drowned in baptism and killed by the mercy of thy dear God, saying, Drown me and throttle me, dear Lord, for henceforth I will gladly die to sin with your son. Wow, that's pretty strong from someone you might not expect it from. 
Now, I want to look at one more passage here. You go, okay, buddy, I see there's a lot, and I've not turned off. There's a lot of passages here that lean to the idea, or don't just lean, but state this is a part of the salvation experience. Why in the world would getting dunked in a pool of water be important? The passage that's helped me more than any other passage is Romans chapter 6. Now, please, this, this passage is not being written to convince people they need to be baptized. It's written to people who've already been baptized, who've heard the amazing gospel of grace, and they understand, according to what Paul has taught so far in the book of Romans about grace and faith, that the more you sin, the more grace you get. So they've decided to take this to the level of, okay, I'm going to go sin more because the cool deal is if I sin more, I get more grace. And Paul's got to answer this. Watch how he answers this. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? How does Paul feel about this? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Guys, here, here's the beauty. Here's the power. Guys, what saves us is what Jesus did for us. Don't ever mistake that. It's his death, burial, and resurrection. The moment we have all of these blessings is the moment that we meet him. And I love, it, it's not just symbolic, it's participatory. You are baptized into Christ. You are buried with Christ. You are resurrected with Christ. That's what's so significant because it lines us up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the effort to be honest, let me give you some biblical counterpoints that I think you've got to deal with. And you've probably heard these, and I think they're things that have to be thought about. Number one is the thief on the cross. Obviously, the thief on the cross is saved by Jesus on the spot, and he's not baptized. A second thing that's got to be added to this whole picture is the reception of the Holy Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, it gets a little bit confusing, and we've got to acknowledge that. Now, here's what I believe. The normative way in Bible that said over and over, water and spirit, water and spirit, water and spirit, is in baptism. When you're baptized in water, you receive the Spirit. But there are some exceptions. Two times where people received the Holy Spirit before baptism. On the day of Pentecost, they speak in tongues. People recognize something special is going on. They preach the gospel. Acts chapter 10, the conversion of the first Gentile, Cornelius. They speak in tongues. The Spirit's poured on them. Then they teach the gospel, and then they're baptized. Now, I could make a very strong case that both of those cases are exceptional. They were showing something, but they're nonetheless there. And there, there's two also verses that confuse me a little bit, is when the Holy Spirit is received after their baptism. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 19. So, how do you put that together? We'll talk about that in just a moment. One other counterpoint is all the passages in the Bible that state that belief saves you, Okay? And let me read the clearest to you. Romans chapter 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty convicting. So, how does this come together? Because listen to me. Whatever theology you come up with on baptism, you can't exclude some verses. It's got to include everything that's said here. So let me give you how it's come together in my mind. Number one, don't pick a fight between belief and baptism. You see, here's what happens. I go, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for remission of sins. You go, Romans 10, believe and you'll be saved. I go, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. You go, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we get in this shooting match, okay? And I'm going to shoot Acts 2.38 at you. You're dead. And you're going you're gonna to shoot this at me. You're dead. Oh, guys, that is so dangerous. Whatever you believe about this, they're all Scripture. They've all got to come together. Now, here's where we have run into a problem, especially in churches of Christ. We have picked a fight between belief and baptism. We've looked at them as being different. Many of us grew up with what's commonly called the five steps of salvation. Hear, believe, say it with me. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And if you're really bold, number six is live a faithful life, all right? So, do you notice there, belief is way over here, and baptism is way over here. That's just not right. Remember what we found out in Colossians chapter 2? When a person is baptized, they're expressing their faith in the resurrection of Jesus. As baptism is not the opposite of faith, biblically teaching, it is an act of faith. Baptism is the moment where I say, there's no way Buddy Bell can save himself. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't read my Bible enough. I can't give enough. I can't go to church enough. Well, what in the world are you going to do, man? I'm going to throw myself by faith on the thing that can save me, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I believe, guys. When you look at what the, the three major things mentioned about salvation— Belief, repentance, and baptism, they are all acts of faith. Because you see, faith in the Bible is a big word. It's a robust word that means I trust something. So so when I believe, I'm trusting Jesus. When I repent, I'm saying, I'm not trusting the way I've lived life. I'm trusting the way you want me to live. And even when I'm baptized, I'm saying, I'm not trusting what I'm doing. I'm trusting what he did. And that's a major distinction that many of us need to learn. Number two, baptism is not the gospel. It is a response to and a picture of the gospel. I've heard people say, well, let's, let's have some gospel preaching, which means you need to preach about baptism, buddy. You, and that is not gospel preaching. The gospel is the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Baptism is not the gospel. It's the response to the gospel. See, sometimes we've been in the mistake of going, we just want you to get baptized. I, mean, I remember I was 10 years old. We had this old, big, tall preacher come to our church. Between Sunday school and church, for whatever reason, he cornered me in the halls. And he said, young man, have you ever been baptized? And I said, no, sir. <laughs> and he said, you need to do it today. And he just walked away. I mean, he didn't know if I believed in God. He didn't know if I loved God. He didn't know anything. Just be baptized. Wow, that's, that's dangerous. What he needed to do is tell me how good Jesus was to the point that I couldn't help but want to get baptized because I wanted to please him. So it's not the gospel. It's the response to the gospel, and it is a beautiful picture. 
It's a live picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Number three, the spotlight in baptism is not on me. It is on Jesus. You see, many of us have thought we are saved because we got baptism right. Let me tell you how picky we got. Anybody remember old days when somebody's baptized in the water and you had a spotter beside the baptistry? A referee? In case what? Somebody's hand popped up in the middle of the baptism. <laughs> then he throws the flag and you rebaptize the person. Now, guys, that was well meaning. But the idea is I've got to get it perfect. The truth is the spotlight's not on you. I love as a church how we celebrate when someone's baptized. And I hope when you're celebrating, you're not just applauding their decision. You're applauding the grace of God. And I think we'll come a lot further if we begin to go, you know what? The spotlight is not on me getting it right. The truth is I can't get it right. The spotlight is on the Jesus who got it right and paid the price for me. And then, number four, this is really important. Let's resign as judge. Isn't that nice of us? Let's don't be the judge anymore. Oh, why don't we do, why don't we let God be the judge? Is that a nice idea? How kind of us. Let's resign as judge and stop using baptism as a judgmental tool. My friends, God is the one who saves. God saves when and where he wants to be. It is about grace. And and guess, here's what I believe. I believe grace is a part of before you become a Christian and after you become a Christian. Because none of us get it perfect. And in the long run, what I believe the Bible teaches is what God is really looking for. And baptism is a perfect display of it. He's looking for faith. And so the Bible says, here's how God judges. God judges according to the heart. He sees the inside. We don't see that. You see, God's acceptance of human faith is not dependent on perfect human obedience. It wasn't true in the Old Testament. It's not true in the New Testament. Now, many of us were brought up on those Old Testament zap you stories where somebody barely makes a mistake and God kills them on the spot. What I didn't learn growing up is there were a lot of stories in the Old Testament where people made mistakes and God didn't zap them. Look at David. Look at Hezekiah who eats the Passover bread in the unholy way. And yet God... God spares them. So what you have to come to the conclusion is, is that God is looking at more than just the action. God's looking at the heart. And I believe today, God's still looking at the heart. Now, if you're a guest with us, Churches of Christ are part of what's called a restoration movement, which is a back-to-the-Bible movement that says, it said at the beginning, We just want to be Christians. We don't want to be a denomination. We just want to be Christians. But they said something we stopped saying about 1940. We want to be Christians, but not the the only Christians. We're only Christians, but not the only Christians. And that's when this thing became so judgmental. And that's where some of you have heard this awful criticism of us that we think we're the only ones going to heaven. Don't believe that. You see, one of the great leaders of that early movement, who's the one who probably first rediscovered that this has to do with remission of sins, was a guy named Alexander Campbell. And Alexander Campbell was actually baptized, not for remission of sins, but for obedience. He was never rebaptized. And Alexander Campbell would say, if I've got two people, and one person is who he would describe in their, his language, 
the pious unimmersed. In other words, the person who's never been immersed but displays the fruit of the Spirit. If I've got to say who's saved between that person and the person who has been baptized but's not living it, I'd say that's the Christian. Let's be really brutally honest here. In a week and one day, when Reverend Thompson and Miss Polly Shepherd come to our church, do we look at them as Christians or not Christians? That's a big difference. And I ask you, my friends, that we stop using this as some kind of term of judgment. Now go with me to point five, so important. Point five is this. Let's reaffirm the beauty and effectiveness of baptism. Here's what I believe. We can do both. We can have a clear, firm teaching on baptism. I've never felt more convicted or clear about it in my life. It's just there. But at the same time, we can drop our judgmental stance that makes us into God. And here's the ironic thing about that I found in my life. When I drop the judgmental stance, people are actually willing to listen to us. Have you noticed that? When you stop telling people, you're going to hell. They might actually listen to you. I wonder why. So, guys, here's what we can do. We can affirm a clear biblical teaching on baptism, and we cannot put ourselves in the role of judge. We can clearly articulate what the Bible teaches, and at the same time, not make ourselves in the judge. So I'm so excited about this. It's taken me a long time to, for this to become crystal clear in my brain. And so one thing we're trying to do is, is, is we want to encourage as many of you who haven't been baptized to be baptized. Not separate than everything, but as an act of faith. And so next Sunday, we're declaring Baptism Celebration Sunday. And we're going to te- celebrate two things next Sunday. Anybody who's ready to be baptized and is baptized, we're going to celebrate big time. But we're also going to celebrate all of us who have been baptized because the majority of scriptures in the New Testament point back to people who've already been baptized. You say, well, buddy, are you trying to, to slow baptisms down? Oh, absolutely not. If you want to get baptized right now, we'll do it. We had three people baptized in first service. If you want to get baptized midnight Tuesday night, we'll do it. I'm not trying to slow it down. I'm trying to speed it up. Because many of you have been thinking about it. Many of you contemplate it. Many of your children are talking about it. We've given you a little blue form in the, your copy of Lifelines that helps prepare someone for baptism. If you need to talk to one of us, please talk to us. We're going to have a great day. We've got these new T-shirts that we've already started to use that say, Raised to Life. Our goal is to make baptism not less significant, but even more significant in our fellowship. And if you're thinking about this, We'll be praying for you all week long. So, how does this all fit? Last Sunday, we had an amazing Easter Sunday. But I remember talking to a sister on the phone this week, and she said, I love Easter. It was so awesome. But the truth is, I have a big letdown after Easter. And that's so great in such an incredible celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And afterwards, I'm, I'm a little bit down about it. My friends... Easter and the resurrection story is not the end, it's the beginning. Jesus was raised from the dead so that you can be raised from the dead. After we get through Easter and we say, now what? Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to meet me at my death, burial, and resurrection. 
And like two or three passages we looked at today, I want you to experience resurrection power in baptism. That's what happens after Easter. So today, if you've heard enough and you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus and you're not perfect, but you trust him, be baptized today. If today you were baptized, but like Paul says in Romans 6, you've gone in a different direction, and you remember the commitment that you made to God and God made to you on your baptism day, and you want to reaffirm it in front of this church today, and let's pray for you. Please come while we stand and sing.